In a recent written piece for Fraser Valley News, I described stigma as a powerful thing. It's stubborn and firm and digs its heels into people's minds and hearts with images and ideas that may not be rational or based on fact. Stigma is dangerous and it's currently killing Canadians at an alarming rate. Recent stats show six people a day die in British Columbia alone. 2,272 British Columbians lost their lives to toxic drugs in 2022, probably underreported. My next guest, Guy Felicella, has lived an interesting life, one with a happy conclusion. Although it started off tough and Guy spent years in the grips of substance use disorder and confusion around who he was in this world, he found his way. He now advocates, educates, advises. He now gives people hope, people who may not otherwise find it. I'm honored to introduce my podcast today with Guy Felicella. Okay, today, fourth episode of Rachel Bexton Connects. I am honored, thrilled, and excited to welcome Guy Felicella. Uh, am I pronouncing your last name right, Guy? That's perfect. Great. Well, I am so so happy to have you here. Uh, I think that. Right now in our city, province, country, this is one of, if not the biggest issues that we need to be talking about and we need to be discussing. And so it's just an honor to have you join me for this, for this chat. Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for, you know, doing what you do and trying to raise awareness so that we can, you know, change this deadly narrative. Of course, that's the, that's the goal. It's tough to do, but, uh, you're working away and you're working really hard at it. So I'm going to start, I'm going to go back a bit. I'm going to kind of start the story at the beginning a little bit and ask you, when was the first time you tried drugs that you can remember or alcohol and kind of what led you to it? Was it escape, peer pressure? You know, did it feel good? What was, what was the reason for your kind of first dive into the, into drug use or alcohol use? I mean, the first time I drank alcohol, because, you know, coming from an Italian family, you know, booze is always available. And so, you know, I drank probably, I think maybe I can remember seven or eight. And honestly, I didn't really like it. I threw up. And probably one of the things I often look back at is that uh, I didn't like alcohol because uh, I watched my mom use it. And so for me, after that, it wasn't really an experience that uh, that I quite enjoyed. And so that was really the, the very first time that I'd ever tried, you know, any mind-altering substance. And then did you, at one point, you switched over to something that you did find escape in? When did that happen? Yeah, when I started using uh, street drugs, was at 12 years old. And really, for, for me, I mean, I was having a, a really challenging time with my life, uh, struggling with anxiety, depression, and self-hatred. And obviously, um, you know, my challenges in my home life with the verbal abuse and the alcoholism and, you know, not being given any coping mechanisms. I was, I was really looking for something, but I think that the sad part of being at 12 years old was thinking about, you know, not really wanting to live. And, um, when I did use street drugs, it really kind of, you know, saved my life at that time. And, um, those drugs really kind of 
you know, gave me the ability to start functioning through life without caring of what was going on around me. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. I don't know if funny is the word for it, but drugs work well until they don't, right? It's That's how I always think of it, is my, in my own experience. They kind of work well to maybe, you know, take away that anxiety, that depression, whatever it is that's going on inside of you. And then at some point, um, you know, it just, you know, it comes crashing down. And, and I don't know if you have that same kind of experience, but uh, they, they work well for a while, potentially, but at some point it's, uh, it crashes and burns. Yeah, no, no question. I mean, the same drugs that once, you know, saved my life were also the same drugs later on trying to end my life. And so when you kind of get at that moment, it's really a crossroads of, you know, understanding that, you know, I'm either going to, you know, die if I continue using or wind up in prison for the rest of my life. And so, yeah, it got to that point for sure. So when was that point? So you've been open about your life on the downtown side, about your drug use, uh, kind of some of your lowest moments in crime, you know, maybe some gang activity, et cetera. When was the time when you said, you know, enough is enough and you decided that you really sincerely wanted to turn things around and, you know, get off the drugs and, and try to try to get clean? I think it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I always had a desire inside to try to do better. I just, I, I couldn't stand the way I was living, but at the same time, I was trapped in the way I was living. And obviously, being involved as a gang associate, it comes a, a lifestyle of, you know, having lots of drugs and having the ability to use them and sell them in a strange in a way that you feel validation for helping people out makes you feel good. And, you know, even when I was a selling drugs, I was always trying to, you know, help people. I saw the struggle, I related to it. And so, you know, at, at those moments, um, you know, and looking back, I, I also hated my life and what had become of it. The amount of drugs that I was using wasn't working. And, you know, for me, it was, but I'd always had this feeling inside that uh, I wanted to stop. I just couldn't. And But I, I constantly tried to stop. This was the reality in my world. It's like, you know, going in and out of treatment or the prison industry or, you know, even called prison treatment that I couldn't access when I went to go ask for help. I went to prison instead. And, you know, oftentimes going through there probably, you know, gave me the ability to, to save my life as well in some circumstances. So. Yeah, it's it's scary to think that if you had had the experience you had nowadays that you may not be with us. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, you know, when you go through so much struggle throughout your life, I mean, I've witnessed so much death, so much pain in my own life, but also the friends that are gone, you know. I'd lost many friends to the HIV AIDS crisis in, in the 90s. They drug users who died of AIDS and die of overdoses, you know, and then I'd lost people in the 90s as well from overdoses. And then, you know, people just constantly, you know, here one day, gone the next. And and so you deal with that and then, you know, you get through that. And then there's, you know, five osteomyelitis bone infections, four in my left leg, one in my back where I had to learn how to walk again. And, you know, these are life serious complications that can end your life, you know, being septic and rhabdomyelosis. I remember just the infections that I constantly received in my body from using in, you know, back alleys and not taking care of my health, 
was, you know, harm reduction was really just a word on a movement that drug users took care of each other. It wasn't really the health authority wasn't doing anything, maybe handing out a syringe one for one, and, mm-hmm. you know, just all that. And then the, you know, the six overdoses, which occurred between 2012 and 2013 and some, somewhat of nine under a year, nine months, you know, you just, really felt just so defeated inside mentally and physically and emotionally. And it was like, I just knew that if I was going to either die in my addiction or I was going to die trying to get out. And I didn't, I didn't want to die alone in a back alley or, you know, someplace where in a hotel, but that would have been the reality of my life if I didn't make the move when I did. So, so what move did you make? And the reason I ask is that I remember as a substance user myself thinking that I didn't think I could ever get out of it. I thought, between the physical, but mostly the psychological side effects of withdrawal, uh, I didn't think I could do it. And I thought, I'm going to have to spend my life on these substances. So where did you turn? What was, you know, what was the, you know, the solution? Or even when you've spoken to your work with Dr. Gabor Mate, I respect very much. I've read some of his, some of his books and uh, obviously he has a great approach to understanding things and so where did you turn and what was it that that really kind of worked for you well i I mean i never really call it one moment i call it a bunch of moments that led up to a moment but yeah you know with gabor you know being diagnosed with adhd gave me the ability you know i always felt that i was stupid in my life that i couldn't learn like anybody else or understand things that were being said or you know i could hear what you were saying and nod my head but i really didn't understand and you carry this shame around with you for your life. You don't share with people that you feel stupid. Having that awareness helped. Obviously, people's kindness throughout the years, you know, helped where people checked in on me or, you know, helped me at insight, helped me get into detox, helped me get into treatment. Felt this, you know, overwhelming sense of caring from certain people that always just cared. And, you know, putting the pieces together in my own life, you know, I'd, I'd been suppressing trauma my whole life and not really looking at it. You know, the drugs were just a reasonable response because I didn't know how to deal with it. And it was freaking painful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when somebody would tell me his problems are the drugs, just get off the drugs and his life will get better. Well, when I got off the drugs, my life didn't get better. And it was because addressing trauma is one of those things that I've learned in my life. that's very fearful to look at. You're staring yourself in the face and you don't have your friend drugs to... Um, mm-hmm to use to cope. And so once I put all the pieces together of the puzzle, it became somewhat of a journey. But once that was there and I was aware of it and I had support, it really became a lot easier to treat the addiction. Yes. Now, when you're talking about the traumas kind of looking yourself in the face and, you know, in, in my opinion, the, you want to call it the disease of addiction or substance abuse disorder, it's not something that, that, that goes away completely, kind of always, you know, sits in the soul in some sense, at least in your memories. Uh, and I guess my question to you is, you know, do you ever have those moments where you remember the escape and you're slightly, uh, tempted by that escape? Uh, I am at times. And then I let the whole tape play and I realize where that goes and it does not go to a good place. And my family, I think of them and that's what stops me. But, you know, for you, do you ever have those moments of thinking, you know, a, a nice escape during this stressful time, seeing all this trauma that you're seeing on the downtown east side, six deaths a day in British Columbia? I mean, it's just overwhelming. 
if you do have those moments, how do you get through them and, and stay stay recovered and well and healthy? Honestly, nowadays, you know, I dealt with a lot of the underlying issues. Uh, in the beginning, I used to think about it all the time, but um, honestly, the, the drugs have changed so much. And I don't need to use them for the reasons that I was using them. I know that, you know, I was never a social substance user. I was a get wasted substance user. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for, for me, um, I don't need to get, uh, wasted because it just it never really worked for me. Obviously, you know, in dealing with the stuff that I work with, I take care of myself. You know, I go to trauma therapy and I work out and I eat healthy. And, but most importantly, I'm connected with, you know, people, my family, my support group, the people that love and care. And, and, you know, it's a big responsibility what I do. You know, I, I don't take that lightly that, uh, you know, especially educating youth on substances and harm reduction and treatment stigma, you know, you, you become somewhat of a accountable to them because they look up to you. And so, you know, for me, the, the, the drugs aren't the same. And people ask me that all the time. How can you be in the downtown east side all the time and not use this stuff? And I just tell them, I say, well, it's not the same drugs. And I've also dealt with the core reasons why I was using those drugs in the first place. And I just don't need them anymore. And I'm grateful that I don't. Yeah, no, that's that's it. That's vital. And it's, it, you must be incredibly thankful that you're at, in that place. Yeah, um, wisdom, wisdom is one of those things that you can learn by watching other people make mistakes and not make the same mistakes yourself. And I've made a lot of mistakes when it came to treatment and recovery used and relapsed and got high got high in the facility took people out with me got high and you know it just immediately um my life spiraled downhill and i always meant that the police were coming it never meant when i used drugs that the police weren't coming for me they were always coming and it was just a matter of time before those things kept in place and so you know, like you were saying about yourself where you play the tape out. I know the tape so well. It's like I have a crystal ball. I can tell you what's going to happen. And so for me, it's just not even a, a thought anymore. Uh, it gives me the ability to to do things that, you know, a lot of people probably would feel uncomfortable doing. But, um, you know, I'm grateful that I've done a lot of work. I, I don't think recovery is so much about its sobriety. I think it's more about putting in the work of how we feel about ourselves and how our outlook is in society. And, you know, one of the hardest things for me wasn't getting sober. It was changing those dysfunctional behaviors that I had that were ruining my life. And so, you know, I look at that with the blessing. The stigmas are, you know, they can be as deadly as the drugs themselves. Um, I'm sure when you walk by people on the downtown east side, you don't think of them as lost causes. Uh, you were once there. Look where you are today. The stigmas, I think, are what keep often, you know, uh, government bodies, um, the general public, families, whoever it may be, from seeking um, help, from using harm reduction. How do we move away from these deadly, these dangerous stigmas? How do we debunk them? I mean, what is the answer to that? I've tried so many things that I just want to know if you have any thoughts on, on kind of debunking these signals about who the substance user is, why they use, et cetera. 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think awareness, what you're doing here, I think that all blends in well to give people understanding. I think, you know, I talk to so many people about it. You know, this is not something that's in the downtown east side or the Wally Strip. This is in every community. You know, the way media has portrayed it um, over the last couple of decades, you know, pointing at the syringe in the puddle or, you know, yes. people, people who are homeless or you know, it becomes this thing where everybody starts to just gravitate towards that. Unfortunately, um, the reality is, is that's a false narrative, but also to the majority of people who do die alone, almost 60% die in private residence. So that could be a house like your listeners or your house, my house. And the reality is, is that stigma that exists is also the consequences that come with that as well. So if somebody has family or kids, um, and they do develop a substance use disorder. It's very hard for them to reach out because there's consequences to that. They could lose their children, their jobs, uh, paying a mortgage. There's just so much punishment that's gone into this thing. And so that stigma is the main driver of why people use alone and die because of it and not reach out for support. And stigma exists to give society its excuse to treat us or substance users or former substance users with a, a, a social scourge or a mark. And, um, you know, uh, that part is is killing people. And you're right. <clears throat> I've said it many times. Stigma in our society is, is just as deadly as the sus- substances themselves. It's, it's amazing to me that even highly educated, you know, uh, not that the education brings, you know, all the knowledge and wisdom in the world, because that's certainly... Uh, uh, you know, a myth, but highly educated people uh, truly do believe in these stigmas. I mean, when I was a, I guess you could say, a functioning addict at one point before him crashing down, um, you know, when I did announce and came out with my story, and I did so because I wanted people to know that professionals and people of all walks of life can, you know, suffer from substance use disorder. I did it um, with fear, but because I felt it was the right thing to do. And I suffered from that. I mean, there were people in the corporate community who looked at me differently, who judged me. And I could feel it. I mean, I know a lot of it might have been paranoia, but there was certainly some there. Uh, and I think that's really unfortunate. Um, and it, I think professionals, I think there's a large group of professionals who are not seeking help because of that. And I think that that is why there's probably a large under representation of those who have substance use disorder because professionals are not seeking the help that they need. Um, tell me a bit about the work that you do, because I know that you speak with students and you also do some corporate work and conferences and educating you know, companies. And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I mean, um, that, that started uh, you know, about five, six years ago now where you know, I started sharing my story and I thought, uh, you know, I had an opportunity back then to go into a school and chat with youth. And honestly, I just kind of bumbled my way through it. And, you know, kids were lining up to talk to me about relating to anxiety and depression and, you know, substance use and how do I support a friend. And it just kind of built from there. And, um, you know, I just try to, to showcase that, um, uh, you know, substance users aren't bad people. They just have challenging circumstances and it's punishing people doesn't really do anything except, you know, create incarceration instead of 
a person being able to rehabilitate. So, you know, educating, you know, uh, done a lot of talks, you know, internationally, worldwide, and, you know, had the opportunity to go some to some amazing places and to meet some amazing people. But I think the, the biggest thing that I do is, is uh, I'm an educator and I educate uh, my story on overcoming. And it doesn't matter if you use drugs or not, you're going to overcome something in your life. Um, we all are. And how does that become relatable? And so we become relatable when we share stories that are relatable to individuals. And so, you know, I'm grateful you look back at the things that had happened in your life and you accept them the way they are. And, you know, your past doesn't define you. It's what you do today that does. And so obviously for me, I've um, done a lot of wrongs, but I try to repair that by giving back and helping others. There's a lot of stuff that I don't talk about that I do. And I find that's the stuff that I do just because it meant something to somebody else to, to do what I do. And um, giving back is a huge, huge piece of my life. And I don't have anything um, if I don't help others. And so that's what keeps me grounded. Giving back, that's... That's a question I have for you. I have a lot of people asking me, and I'm sure you have way more um, parents, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters. Uh, how do I help my son? Where do I send them? Uh, you know, where? what's the best detox? What's the best treatment? You know, where should they go? Where do you send people when they come to you? What do you recommend for someone who's in the grip? Uh, has that snake around their neck and, and it just, you know, it just feels helpless to the family because it's a family disease. Um, helpless to the family and to the, and to the user. Where do you send people? What's your, what are your recommendations? I know it's case by case, but any, any top ones you want to highlight? Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I, I mean, I know families and parents, they all have their desire for their kids to go to treatment, but. The reality for me is that uh, I go talk to the person if they want to talk to me, you know, lay out a bunch of options and let them know what exists, where it exists, and really let them decide on the pathway. Um, you know, I, I've actually just got a guy into to detox today. And, um, you know, it's been probably four times since I've, I've gotten him in there. And I keep getting him in there because, you know, he keeps wanting to go and try and um, you know, people I get into treatment, it's really just kind of explaining what goes on in treatment and then giving them the ability to make their own decision. And if treatment isn't an option, then I just tell them that I'm here to support them anywhere I can. And, you know, I've even had people come and um, families come and um, this guy was struggling and he had depression and he had, you know, I'm not no medical uh, specialist, but, uh, he had similar mannerisms to myself that became relatable. And anyway, I said to him, I said, uh, have you ever been tested for, treated for, or looked upon to have ADHD? And he said, no. And that was another journey in itself because, um, to get that done publicly in a public healthcare can take years. And so we found a private clinic, um, in Vancouver and he went there and in three weeks he was diagnosed with ADHD and, mm -hmm. um, and now his life is starting to put the pieces back together but he was more shocked because there's even stigma around ADHD because people don't have an understanding of what it looks like and it can look like many different things so you know I just try to really help people um, and give advice um, but I don't really change 
or tell them what they need to do. They really tell me I'm just somewhat of a taxi driver, I guess you could say. No, I think that's the best way to approach it. I mean, the person needs to want it, and they need to want it, you know, in a way that makes sense for them. Everybody has their own path. Um, I feel like there there seems to be some disagreements right now between the recovery and the harm reduction communities. And I find that to be kind of distracting and the politics of it all just to be kind of time-wasting simply because we're losing lives and we're losing too many. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think that there's kind of this disagreement between recovery, harm reduction communities and, and how can we put that aside and, you know, do what's right to, to stop these passings? I think, you know, with certain recovery groups, yes, um, there is that divide. You know, they honestly don't support harm reduction at all. And, you know, that's the, the challenge that you'll be up against. But there are a lot that uh, have adapted, you know, um, to the ongoing crisis the way it is and changed a lot of their approaches. And so, you know, it's uninspiring for people to point fingers at um, harm reduction or saying that it's not working. And it's also uninspiring for some people in harm reduction to say recovery doesn't work. Because, you know, the reality is, is that that doesn't uh, help the person that's struggling. That, that becomes something somewhat of a, a selfish um, approach towards your own agenda and not yeah. the person that's struggling. And so, um, you know, for, for me, um, you know, we have to do better because if somebody walked into Insight and said to me that they wanted to get off drugs and not use any methadone, then I would help them. I wouldn't say don't do that. It's dangerous. People know the dangers and risks that are out there in their lives, but I never tell somebody something doesn't work. I can honestly say that there was a lot of things that didn't work for me, but that doesn't mean that they might not work for you either. Exactly. And so I never really try to go and say that this is bad or that's bad or AA is bad or NA is bad because they work for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And, Maybe for some people, what I say is that you just haven't found your way yet, but we'll keep fighting and looking. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's a wise way to, to look at things. I wish that I had had someone say that to me in times of, of hopelessness. What do you think is the first big step that government needs to make? I mean, they made a big one today. You were a part of that announcement. Uh, I don't know if you want to speak to it briefly and then answer the question as to what maybe could be next to, to help out. Yeah, I mean, today's announcement, although, you know, a, a lot of my, I like the uh, money that's going into addiction treatment for people. Uh, I guess for me, it's the wait and see about the access to it. Access to things is probably the most important. And same with on the harm reduction front as well as that, you, you know, you can't spend a billion dollars on recovery treatment and mental health and then, you know, at the expense of harm reduction. So for me, I'm always a full continuum of care guy that uh, believes that you need all pathways and models to, to, to help people. And one of the things, we have 42 people who die every week in British Columbia, and we just haven't been able to compete with the illicit drug supply or organized crime. And the drug supply changes faster than our response. And so, you know, we really have to do something to get ahead. And the one thing is, is giving people access to safer alternatives to the illicit drug supply. 
And the other thing is, is that if people become, you know, addicted to the illicit drug supply that, and they want help and support that we're able to get them into, you know, detox and treatment facilities. And then not just that, um, we also need aftercare and support vital for people moving forward with their lives. You can't expect what people are trying to escape. And why would they go to treatment if we're just going to put them back in the same circumstance? It won't work. And so I would hope that this government uh, continues to, you know, cover all pathways. But definitely, um, for me, the coroner's service report every month that tells the death toll in this province is the thing that needs to go down in order for us to look at any kind of success. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. It's, I have it in front of me, and I just looking at the numbers is shocking. Some of the things you said in your TED Talks about, you know, you referenced the plane crash and how many it took to ground that plane. It was two. Um, and now we're years and years into these deaths and 11 plus thousand, uh, if not more, uh, deaths due to uh, toxic drugs. And we're still uh, at the same level and, and increasing. So, we need, uh, we do need that safe, safe supply. Do you think we'll get there? Do you think that we'll get there soon? The safe supply. Yeah, we have, you know, uh, diagnosed 55,000 people with opiate use disorder. I would probably suspect that there's between six to eight percent that do access safer alternatives. And so we definitely need a bigger percentage on that in our, um, in our province, we need to bump that up where people can access it just to try to remove themselves from the illicit drug supply or not have them in withdrawal so that they don't have to do things out of character, which, you know, whether that's crime or survival sex trade work. And so there's a lot of aspects to it. But, yeah. you know, people are struggling with a lot of pain in our society, especially in the downtown east side, and even people who are in communities that uh, have a suburb and a cul-de-sac. You know, when you're using substances, if you can use substances and socialize and have a great time and go to work and do everything your life commits, and fantastic. But if you're a substance user locked in a bathroom for eight hours, that's not fun for anybody. Yeah, yeah I mean, there are um, certainly some substance users who can make it work uh, in their life. Uh, I don't know how many. I know there are many who, who simply can't. And uh, it is... A horrible existence. And uh, a hopeless one, but it doesn't have to be hopeless. And I think you're a perfect example of the uh, people out there who are, you know, working every day to bring hope to this, to what seems like a hopeless situation. So thank you for being one of those people. It's not easy work. It is very difficult, as you've said. Um, there's a lot of weight on your shoulders. I'm sure a lot of Stress, a lot of emotion that goes along with it. Um, thank you for what you do, Guy. It's uh, I'm getting really grateful for for your work, and um, I want to end every conversation with my guests by asking them about their favorite local nonprofit. If listeners want to thank you by supporting a local nonprofit, which is one that you would, that's close to your heart that you would recommend supporting. Well, I mean, I have so many that are really close to close well, to you, my heart. You can name a few, name a couple. Well, you know, I met some interesting people along the way in the journey, and so you know, um, uh, it's an organization, uh, you know, Covenant House is 
has become somewhat of a, you know, they've changed and adapted to the crisis of what it is today and changed a lot of their approaches from the past to make it right. And uh, I'm really near and dear to them because, you know, they help a lot of youth and, you know, uh, a lot of people who are able to access their shelter, access food, access housing there. So, you know, those are, those are places that's close to mine. And, Obviously, for me also to, you know, I respect the work at the uh, overdose prevention site. So they're a great society that uh, opened up a facility that uh, needed to give people a different perspective on, you know, a supervised consumption site or a non-clinical setting. And so admire their work as well. And, you know, I also admire people just that maybe they don't have a nonprofit, but they show up in the downtown east side handing out sandwiches and food. I've never forgotten those people that took time out of their day to come down there and act a little kindness into my life. I just always remember these uh, Christian ladies that would come down there and they made the best baked potatoes I'd ever had in my life. And, uh, and I used to just, they used to give me two because I'd be like, oh, it's so good. And they load them up with cheese and sour cream and onions and chives, and bacon bits. And we're talking a full meal deal. Nothing. And um, I just felt comforted that uh, that that people cared. And so well, those are the types of people and whether it's an organization or not, I just respect people that way. Definitely encourage people uh, who have the ability to, uh, to go down to the Dandy side and, you know, just ask, you know, how can I help? What can I do? Um, I think that there's uh, there's a job for you there. If you have the heart for it, uh, there is a job for you there. You can sell, you know, apps and others. They can use help all the time. So those are great recommendations. Well, I want to thank you so much for, for joining me, Guy. Uh, next time you join me, I hope is, I don't know, less than a year from now. And we're sitting here talking about, um, the fact that we now have access to safe supply and that our, uh, monthly corner support numbers are decreasing at a rapid rate. That would be an amazing conversation to have with you. No, thanks a lot. Um, Rachel, that'd be fantastic in my world as well. And keep up the good work. And thanks for having me on your show. Thank you so much for being here. Be kind and connect with authenticity. You're listening to Rachel Thexton Connects.